0: All right, everyone. Welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io, and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone, welcome back to Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at Two Bit Idiots, uh, here with Simon Taylor, the co-founder of 11FS. We're gonna we're gonna talk quite a bit about uh, uh, Simon's company, his, his migration from banking, uh, along with a, um, a group of Avengers, I guess. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. what, 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 whatever you guys might call yourself, as former insiders at the kind of corporate strategy arms and product arms of, of some of the major banks, mm-hmm. um, now working on consulting solutions and things. You know, like how to approach challenger banks, how to think about disruption from uh, from, from ecosystems like digital assets. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to cross a lot of grounds um, because uh, Simon and I also know each other from uh, global digital finance. Yeah. Um, which is uh, an organization focused on uh, promoting better standards and, and kind of cross border um, norms uh, in the digital asset ecosystem, both for exchanges, for stable coins, for um, general uh, data companies, which includes us, of course, mm-hmm. uh, and then, of course, uh, token issuers. So um, there's probably 50 different directions mm-hmm. that, we, that we could go uh, with this conversation. I'm sure we're going to go down at least a couple of them. Let's, let's try one of them. But um, for, uh, for starters, before we dive in, I um, want to thank Voyager uh, for sponsoring this, uh, this podcast. Go check them out, investvoyager.com, um, and uh, enter promo code uh, MASARI uh, if you want a referral fee for, uh, for, for some free Bitcoin, not a gimmick. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing to keep an eye on if you are in San Francisco for Blockchain Week, uh, my colleague Chow is going to be sitting on stage and doing some interviews of other founders uh, at the uh, at the main events. Um, ben uh, and and Shao will be floating around, so make sure if you see them with the Masari shirt, I'm not wearing mine today, mm-hmm. but if you see uh, someone with the Masari shirt, go up, say hello, and uh, be sure to check out some of those live sessions uh, that are gonna be hosted mercifully by someone other than me for, for both my and your benefit. Um, so uh, Simon, so we've known each other for a few years, mm-hmm. Your background is uh, at the Evil Empires, but yep. kind of like one of the renegades with, yeah. within. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's start like all the way back, um, your journey into crypto mm. and uh, I'd imagine, uh, maybe this is a false assumption, but maybe the personal journey was Bitcoin, but the corporate journey was I got to figure out blockchain on behalf of uh, my bank. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or was it? Or was it, the other, or was it the no, other no, way around? The, well, the yeah.
1: personal journey starts with um, you know just before Christmas, I'd broken up with an ex, um, and it was this was of, what year? Uh, this was 2012. Okay. I mm-hmm. Okay, 2000, no, it's 2013. Um, and I I was always into gaming PCs, and I had a bunch of gaming rigs and Nvidia chips sitting around, and I picked up and put down uh, <laughs> Bitcoin mining. I think in early 2010 and by this point it was already une- uneconomical and mm-hmm. I just never touched it again I'm not one of those that was there from the start and following all the way through I, d- I picked it up and then put it down uh, and then suddenly I find myself you know it's it's winter it's London um, it's raining outside and I had like two choices do, um, I'm now single do I close the curtains and drink a of Jack Daniels or do I get a hobby um, and unfortunately I decided to just check out meetup.com before I cracked open the, the JD and Coke and um, I found uh, an Ethereum meetup and I was like, what the heck is Ethereum? This is interesting. Um, and then I started Googling around and I saw this YouTube video from Vitalik and Charles Hoskinson. And I was like, oh, this stuff, this is pretty interesting. I always saw um, Bitcoin as being brilliant because of how brutal it was. It's like a machete. It does one thing just incredibly well, but mm-hmm. that was kind of its MO, and maybe that's its beauty. But when I looked at Ethereum, my, my sort of peon brain just went, "Ooh, it's like a Swiss army knife, but for crypto. And it's like, you know, it's kind of where they were going and it was early, but it was conceptual. And the spidey sense in me just went, I'm, I'm going to have to go to this. And I went to that first meetup in East London and I came across a bunch of interesting people. Uh, one guy that worked for IBM at the time, uh, really like um, short guy with uh, short, spiky hair and glasses, a chap by the name of Richard Brown, who's now the mm-hmm. CTO of R3. Um, and another guy, this like American lawyer type who was really, really loud and obnoxious but sort of talking at me constantly and was excited that I was from a bank uh, and that's Preston Byrne. So, <laughs> so this was, uh, that was an interesting kind of uh, baptism into this world and actually to his credit Charles Hoskinson was Maybe really the cool.
0: only person in the industry I could think of that at that time would have been excited to talk to somebody from a bank. Yeah.
1: (laughs) yeah. Well, of course, he was a securities lawyer. And I think he was excited that somebody at a bank was seeing this thing as interesting. It's like a validation thing. Um, Like, oh, wait, there is potential here. Uh, And I went back internally in Barclays and, and started shopping the thing around. And the context was, um, you know, my job, my day job at the time was to build their innovation platform. So they have, um, you, know, you know, the office here in, London, uh, in New York called Rise. Um, they've got another one in London. This was like, how do we collaborate with fintech? They did a partnership with textiles. So I was on the founding team of that, and my job was to know what was happening in crypto. So this was um, in startup land and fintech. So this was kind of uh, aligned to those. And I went to uh, all the people internally, and I just went, hey, there's a, there's an ecosystem forming in. Uh, London around this crypto thing, um, and I you know I want to bring them in. So we had an auditorium of about I don't know 150 seats, and the first few Ethereum meetups were done in pubs and they were really scratchy. And mm-hmm. I went to um, I think it was Charles and had a had a Skype call with Charles and just went. Like, why don't you guys use this Barclays space? There's something really like, you guys are completely upending financial services and you're doing it inside of a Barclays building. That appealed to the troll nature, I think, of, of the early Ethereum community. And so we, they started running all of their London events out of, um, out of the space that we had in Whitechapel at the time. And then we just brought in a load of the crypto events and I was very fortunate that, uh, you know, a lot of that community um, brought me in as one of their own and just had amazing conversations. Uh, and then eventually in sort of um, towards the end of 2014, the chief technology officer found out that wait, hang on, Vitalik's in a space that Barclays owns. He certainly got interested in all of this stuff and he went, right, we need to change your job, Simon. You're now head of blockchain R&D. Go figure this space out. And, um, you know, who do we invest in? What do we do? Um, and kind of, yeah, the rest is history. Maybe
0: um, the first banker to have that esteemed position.
1: Yeah, I think I might have been. Um, we ran a, an event in, uh, the fifth of December, I think it was, twenty fourteen, or maybe might have been fifteen, I can't remember, I get the years mixed up. It was towards the end of that time period. I think it was fourteen. Yeah it was. Um because then R three was fifteen, wasn't it? Um and then we invited a few of the banks. So we invited Citi and JP Morgan, but we also had uh, Greg Schve there. We had some of the guys from Chain.com. We had um, Jed McCaleb. So there's a bunch of people that came to this space that we had in London. And we just went, like, what is the decentralized bank? Is there a role for a bank in the future? And just had mm-hmm. like a couple of days workshopping it. Peter, Todd came down. It was, it was. And I think word kind of got out that, wait, Hannah, these, these barfies folks are up to something. Of course, we didn't have a clue. We, mm-hmm. were, we were figuring it out, but um, typically, you know, the, the other person over there doing something is scary. Why are they inviting us in? Uh, and I think that sort of had a lot to do with with pushing that conversation forward, and and it was just one of the many things that was kind of happening around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was in the fortunate position as well, as you know, Barclays is is very much I think still trusted and respected by the British government. And then when the British government had questions about all things blockchain and crypto. I was the person that they sent from the bank. It's like, yeah. oh we have one of those. Here here's here's Simon.
0: Just parade you around. Like yeah. a, like, like the, <laughs> and then the, into the the clients
1: yeah. and all that stuff. So anybody who's worked in a bank knows if mm-hmm. you know about a thing that you tend to get paraded to the to the yes. big clients and to the government. Uh, but the, uh, to my surprise, the British government asked me to author a, a strategy report for them and um, then found myself uh, working a lot with central banks and governments, helping them think about their strategy and building relationships with policymakers. Um, and I always um, considered myself a day walker, like hopefully I have a modicum of credibility with some of the folks on the edges of crypto mm-hmm. um, and a modicum of credibility in financial services. Um, and that's still very much how I see the future. That convergence thesis, like the answer is probably somewhere in the middle of the two. It's not binary mm-hmm. on on either side. So it was a heck
0: of a journey for sure. Uh, and so you leave in 2016, was it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so let, let's talk about that because uh, you leave to join as one of the co-founders of Eleven FS, mm-hmm. a, a consultancy which has, um, at least in in the UK and in Europe, some some pretty high profile folks that have written uh, that have written you know books uh, yeah. and and talk quite a bit about this concept of a challenger bank. Yes. Right, so, so the disruption of financial services with entirely new entities. Um, and we're gonna go into the, the crypto realm and how this is relevant and, and which players you, you're keeping an eye on. But first, um, let's break down uh, this concept of a challenger bank and any of the other mm-hmm. services and, 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 and projects that you are currently engaged with because you've got uh, several yeah. folks similar to you uh, as co-founders and now a, a pretty big team uh, yeah. at, at 11FS. What is, the, um, what is the typical work that you're doing? And, um, and let's talk about you know how to actually create a, a ground-up challenger bank that's got some degree of credibility yeah, because so- that's, that's always seems to be the, the missing piece when you think about challenger banks, it, it, it's basically um, shorthand in many cases for shitty compliance or <laughs> structure or products or, and like not really credible, so yeah, and I think walk that's that journey.
1: Issue, that, you know, like you look at the the issues um, N26 had with BaFin and, and Revolut have had with the regulators in the UK, um, I think none of this stuff's easy uh, mm-hmm. and credibility is, is always uh, a perspective thing, right? Um, especially if somebody's disrupting you. I'm, I'm definitely reminded of the the Netflix CEO uh, who in 2008, not the Netflix, sorry, the Blockbuster CEO, mm-hmm. who said in 2008, I'm not really worried about Netflix, but I'm worried about Apple and Microsoft. So I do think a lot of people dismiss challenger banks because of the job they have rather mm-hmm. than um, rather than their actual underlying credibility. But listen, um, i I'd, I'd been doing the blockchain stuff for Barclays and it was pretty clear to me that it was going to be a while until we were going to actually be able to execute something and build something inside mm-hmm. of financial services. It was going to be several years and I had a mobile delivery background, I delivered the second mobile banking app in the UK market, I'd done a bunch of mobile delivery for Barclays, like I like getting things to market and in the hands of customers. Um, and so David Breer, who's now the CEO of 11FS, um, called me literally after I would had a very tough budget conversation where um, another strategy consultancy had suggested that I maybe shouldn't get any budget because it was gonna be a while. Um, so I, uh, David said, uh, I was standing on the 22nd floor of Barclays looking out of the window and the first thing David said was you know, like, man, you know, I heard it's, it's, it's kind of challenging for blockchain at the moment. How do you feel about a bit of a soft landing? And I was looking down thinking, wait, how can he see me? Like what's going on here? And he proceeded to tell me about this idea called a challenger consultancy, and the idea of a challenger consultancy was, you know, I think uh, bankers especially have gotten really, really sick of having dealt with, um, you know, you meet the really interesting person that you want to work with, and then here comes an army of graduates underneath that that yep. have not done much. And they, they may be super talented, and there are some amazing people that work in those organizations, and they do incredible things, um, but they fundamentally weren't solving some of the problems that we saw in banking. Um, you know, uh, Regulation had really changed in the UK and is now changing around the world. Uh, technology has become something where you don't have to rely on legacy systems as a way of getting things done anymore. Mm-hmm. You can build things with modern open source tech stacks and often it's simpler and cheaper to start again than it is to try and integrate it back to the old systems. And then really the, the customer expectation has fundamentally changed. Um, the, what you're used to with Spotify and Netflix is so different to what you get from your bank. And then lastly, um, the challenges have arrived. Um, and you can see this in the UK. You know, Monzo has uh, been taking customers and deposits out of a lot of the uh, major high street banks now for three or four years. And it's gone from that's cute to, oh, this is a serious threat. We need mm-hmm. to do our own challenges. Um, so that was David's kind of thesis. And I thought, well, that's incredible. Um, I, I really, really want to get involved in building challenger banks and, and contributing any way I can. And. Uh, he said, "Well, you're going to meet this guy, Jason." And I was like, "Oh yeah, Jason. He was the guy at Monzo, right?" And he goes, "Yes." So Jason, who's my other co-founder, was the co-founder, was one of the co-founders at Starling and at Monzo. So if you're not familiar with UK challenger banks, that two of the poster children, you know, it's like Chime but bigger. Um, mm-hmm. And he'd done. So he had quite a track record of starting a bank from scratch. Figuring out what it needed to be and, and getting that in the hands of a customer. And I went for a coffee with Jason and we just got on like a house on fire. Like, we just have the same perspectives and views on how you build things. Um, you know, it's the old um, skateboard, scooter, and motorbike car approach to building products versus where a lot of banks come at it, which is like, how do I build the Humvee? Like, everything yeah, has to be yeah, yeah. instantly Humvee and, and costs an incredible amount of money and doesn't guarantee success. So the biggest risk that we are set up to try and deal with is propositional risk. Like, Banks can spend a lot of money. They mm-hmm. have a lot of talented people, but can they ship product that customers will love? Yes. And, and I think a lot of that is, is it's how the sausage gets made. The, the gap between somebody having a great idea in a bank and that landing in the hands of a customer mm-hmm. is a ways of working thing. And it's a practices and it's a culture thing. And so one of the things we can do is we can very quickly build a team that's doing something maybe Greenfield, maybe Challenger based, and we can actually hire into that team and help people build uh, new entities and new brands. Um, so I mean, the the obvious example would be uh, we built the Challenger bank for you know, RBS in the UK. It's called Metal. Mm-hmm. You can check it out, M-E-T-T-L-E.co.uk. Um, and we did everything from sort of the initial strategy to the research, to the design, to the product, to the tech, but also some of the hard stuff like compliance, like operations. Um, and then eventually we, we sort of helped them hire uh, behind mm-hmm. us uh, and then sort of eventually removed ourselves from the process. So I think a, a challenger consultancy is one that helps you build businesses rather than do projects because, you know, like the the consultancy- Something with
0: staying power versus a power plant. Exactly, exactly. Yep.
1: We, we really care about, um, did it land in the hands of the customer and did it solve the problem?
0: So how much time are you, uh, are you the still like the crypto guy then? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So how much time are you spending uh, individually and then as a company um, thinking about the bridge between all of the work that you're doing and I'd call it like traditional FinTech, mm-hmm. right? Which are, um, working off of existing rails and regulatory structures to actually ship product, in many cases for large incumbents that Mm -hmm. are just trying to very slowly, incrementally level up their game, to um, something that is is kind of an entirely new, parallel, exotic, Mm -hmm. uh, wild west, Mm -hmm. you know, potential substitute for the financial system. And I think um, you and I and and, maybe a number of other folks share the thesis that the Venn diagram of crypto finance and actual finance will ultimately just be a circle. Yes, um, but it's still very much like two. I don't even know if there's like any overlap in the middle right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe like a tiny, tiny fragment. And just to me seeing, how much... so, so how do you how do you kind of bridge that gap? How do you um, think about compartmentalizing you know crypto initiatives at Eleven FS or um, just creating a sandbox that that you're you're yeah. ready for when any of those other customers are, are ready to cross the chasm
1: so we, we have um so like i think it's fair to say our overwhelmingly our client base has been incumbents but we do have a lot of fintech clients as well mm-hmm. so um let's say you're a fintech and you um you just want a product team to bounce something off that's not your product team for some validation we do lots of smaller pieces like that um fintechs had you know are probably not big enough to or you know like a lot of the the big you you deloitte your accentures and so on that have mature established practices would love to work with some of those fintechs but maybe there isn't that cultural fit and so we do we do a lot of work there and that does include some crypto companies as well mm-hmm. um so the t-shirt i'm wearing at the moment 11fs pulse is something we call our netflix of fintech so this allows you to see behind the login screen of your favorite application and that includes a number of um non-custodial wallets, wallets, Coinbase, you name them, um, and looking at how do I benchmark what the wallet I'm building looks like versus Coinbase, versus Zango, versus whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's one area. Another area is um, outside of consulting, we also have a platform we're building uh, where, which is called 11FS Foundry. We think about this as the AWS of financial services. And my thesis here is that, um, again, the internal infrastructure inside of a bank Is probably not going to go away, um, but it does need an upgrade. So let's say we find ourselves in a world in which um, assets are recorded on some shared infrastructure like a blockchain. Does that mean I'm not going to want my own private technology real estate? Does it obviate the removal of me having technology? And as I thought about that, my thesis is, no, I think you're still going to need your own tech. You're still going to need to service assets, you're still going to need to build, build risk models on those assets. There's still a whole bunch of stuff you have to do as an organization. So mm-hmm. how do I build that as a service? Um, and so uh, the 11FS Foundry platform is primarily uh, right now aimed at uh, banks who want to really uh, banks and financial services companies who want a modern core banking architecture but that also really want to be able to configure their products. Just to set up the problem statement for a second. If I'm a bank and I want to launch a product, mm-hmm. typically you're looking at about nine months. Uh, and a lot of that comes down to the compliance and the legal stuff, but a lot of it is systems that I need to integrate to 15 different systems. Uh, and then the technology vendors that are in that space have been around for 20, 30 years. Um, it's, it's kind of this big lumbering beast of which 95% you're never going to use. Mm-hmm. So how do I have that thing that looks like AWS where, oh, I need a, a WordPress node. There it is. Yep. So that's the vision for Foundry. Now, Foundry will serve that for fintechs, so it will serve it for financial services and for non-FS companies uh, who are uh, kind of interested in doing financial services. Like for instance, this isn't anything to do with us, but the likes of an Uber money is, is a classic example of where companies are starting to bring financial services in-house. And increasingly I see um, there's gonna be a challenge as cap markets businesses start to look at digital assets. They're gonna go like, oh, there's this amazing world of crypto assets. How do I plug that into my existing infrastructure and that's where we're kind of stuck at the moment. We're Mm -hmm. stuck at like um, the pilot, the one transaction where we run one transaction alongside the other. We do, um, Santander did a really interesting bond issuance um, and true DVP settlement on uh, the Ethereum mainnet. Super exciting piece of work. But then how are they going to operationalize that? And you start getting into all of the problems of integration and big programs of work. So if you're going to move this market liquidity in, again, is it the same thesis? Is it easier to start this greenfield with something internal that can work with the outside world, that can be your technology real estate, than it is to try and integrate it to all your existing systems that frankly weren't designed to operate in that world. Mm-hmm. So that's the thesis and that's that's kind of what we're working on. And there's. Um, there's a number of organizations that are in crypto as hedge funds or as uh, you know, building exchanges who increasingly have moved from uh, kind of trying to build their own to using suppliers um, and, and kind of putting things together and understanding their own technology, real estate and where that fits together. I think we've seen it as Web 3 versus Web 2, but actually the reality is the two complement each other quite nicely, especially when you're building a business.
0: Well, they have to live in parallel, though. And mm-hmm. so, um, so you think about Foundry, it, the way that you outlined it. I would think that for many of these large banks, um, because there's an issue of uncertainty as to when this market will mature, it might, arguably, probably, you know, make sense to just wait until you have to acquire one of these businesses, right? So whether you're acquiring an exchange or an infrastructure provider. Completely. Um, how, um, you know, everybody kind of shits on innovation theater of which I am very suspicious and I think is, is generally worthy of critique. Of, of yeah. But there is another element at play where um, some of the major banks that do have innovation arms of people that are halfway competent mm-hmm. that are making investments um, might be setting themselves up for an inside track at just acquiring these platforms versus mm-hmm. having to worry about building all this from Indeed. scratch or worse, just jerry rigging their existing systems to like retrofit this new mm-hmm. asset class, you know, crypto in particular. Whether you're talking about cryptocurrencies or something like a crypto security where the asset servicing is automated and programmable over time, which mm-hmm. I, I think is, is really where the rubber meets the road. But you, you've in the meantime got this. Very clean split between like the old and the new. Yes, and it does seem like you're talking about two completely different versus yeah. entities um, but they haven't yet met in the middle. I, and I think it depends who you talk to in the organizations
1: because um, there's I think the house view is still very much from from the world of big banks that. Uh, hey you know, it, it has to stay separate and it will be different mm-hmm. um, and then the reality is you know, the conversation internally is a lot more nuanced than that. I think there's a recognition that um, everybody's looking for alpha on the buy side so how are we going to find alpha um, and anything with volatility looks like alpha and so crypto assets look like potential for alpha um, but there, there's not deep liquidity so how do we build liquidity and then that becomes you know, a story that the, these financial marketeers are, are, are familiar with and it's also the need to do the hard yards, um, the, the guys at, I think at Navora have done a really interesting job with the London Stock Exchange Group, I think the folks at SIX, I think the folks at HQLAX have done a lot of hard yards in terms of you know working with the lawyers, <laughs> working with the financial market infrastructure players to understand how do I make this compliant and also still have a business case that stacks up. And so I think that is coming and uh, there's definitely digital teams with uh, in, in a number of organizations that are really seriously talking to their uh, asset management clients about how they would become prime brokers in this world um, of either digi- digitalized uh, real estate or you know, private equity and all of those sorts of things. And they've been around for quite some time as a conversation with your harbors, your temp lumps. And that's kind of all in the mix. And I do think there are people trying to operationalize it and you've kind of got the, the bottom up of new funds being built that would only issue digital assets and then the top down of uh, a whole bunch of people that are sitting on you know eroding margins, potentially entering a liquidity crisis, looking for places that they're gonna have alpha and they're gonna have yield. So I, I do think there's, there's a conversation starting to happen that convenes maybe middle of next year that maybe starts to make people think, well, hang on a minute, that there's an opportunity to bring these two things closer together. But it's a hypothesis, and, and frankly it's why 11FS hasn't focused on that for the time mm-hmm. being. You know, The demand has absolutely been in challenger banks um, on the retail side, then it's moved up to small businesses. Now what we're seeing is that's trying to follow the high growth businesses into the mid-market. And so my thesis is FinTech is almost coming up the curve towards cap markets, and maybe it's 18 months to two years out before mm-hmm. you really see that uh, innovation in cap markets Really, really hit, but if it's eighteen months to two years out, and you're a big institution, you need to be thinking about
0: that now. You need to be budgeting through twenty twenty to get that done. So let's talk about the long game, uh, because what what you are actually um, intimately involved with on the crypto side is not necessarily part of Eleven FS. Mm-hmm. Maybe affiliated. There are some yeah. kind of common common personnel, um, but it's the uh, the global digital finance um, organization. So talk talk a little bit about GDF. Um, you know we were very early supporters and 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 you know continue to be supportive of, of, of the mission of, of GDF. Um, talk a little bit about um, the organization and, and kind of how it's progressed to date uh, mm-hmm. and, and who some of the key players are. Absolutely.
1: So uh, GDF is uh, about seventy-five member organization includes um, Coinbase, Consensus, um, but the likes of R3 and uh, DTCC as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it is firmly in that Venn diagram in the middle of, of those sorts of organizations. Um, and it uh, was founded really um, in the middle of the ICO boom, uh, around amongst the realization that you know, there was going to be a regulatory pushback and there was going to be a need for standards and best practices uh, to kind of put this thing together. But my thesis was, the value of crypto assets uh, is not that they are regulated locally uh, or is not that they are um, taking the same processes, you know, analog processes and then making them digital. Uh, that The value was that they are global in nature and that they are uh, kind of truly digital. And on the truly digital thing, I, I always talk about a metaphor. Do you remember when the iPad came out hmm? and you could download newspapers and you could turn the page on that newspaper? Now you have a newspaper that uh, if I drop it and smash it, I, that, that newspaper costs me $300. And also, if it runs out of battery, then the newspaper doesn't work. Like The only winner in that example was the newspaper companies themselves because they have reduced the cost of distribution. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times people look at digital and innovation as being, how do I reduce my cost rather than how do I start at the customer problem and really understand what digital can do for me? Mm -hmm. And this is the issue we're seeing between crypto and I think uh, the world of digital assets is the world of digital asset is just doing those incremental things. The world of crypto is kind of in that early days of Wikipedia, as Chris Dixon put it, and it's in the wild west. But... Financial services also is a bit different to other market industries. As you how, can how would
0: you draw the distinction between digital assets and crypto? Because uh, most people within crypto would call these assets digital assets or crypto assets. Yeah, I guess I'm you're just...
1: using this differently. So yeah, I, I would say that um, digital assets is a digitized real world asset mm-hmm. um, and crypto assets are born digital. That would be okay. my primary differentiator. There could be other good ones to, to do it, but that that would be my
0: primary differentiator. And 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 GDS focus today is on crypto assets. It's on both, More intentionally. So, okay. So where 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 does the um uh where does the rubber meet the road, and 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 how are are some of these entities coming together to, to mm-hmm. think about norms and standards, given uh, what we mentioned a little while ago. These are two very different realms right now. Digital assets, just because they're traded using a new underlying technology, you don't really need to change much uh, from a regulatory standpoint, or in terms of the structure of the assets sure. or the legal contracts. Um, but you do if you're talking about digital-born assets, right? So, um, what? Uh, how much time is is GDF spending on both, and and, and where is this? So fundamentally if you are representing an asset
1: say? with, um, a, as a digital asset that has a key pair that is managing the ownership of that asset in some way or at least the life cycle or is giving you access to that asset in some way, then you have a, a similar set of technology problems which create a similar set of governance problems. So solving for crypto custody um, as a high watermark and industry standard was was one area we focused on. If you are issuing digital assets, the risk profile you have uh, of how you offer those and what good looks like is broadly the same across both of those asset class types. So if you set a high mark for what that looks like as a code of conduct, then hopefully everybody can, can kind of get involved with that. Um, and then, so what uh, GDF has done is produced uh, more than nine different codes of conduct and it has about five or six different working groups around uh, crypto custody, um, token uh, securitization, and um, sorry, no, tokenized securities, and, and several other stuff again, AML is one of the key working groups. And so uh, there's a whole bunch of like producing codes of conduct work, and then there's essentially engagement with the global policy and regulatory bodies. So, if you think there are great bodies um, in the US and in Europe that are engaging directly with those policymakers and regulators, but then you have the supranational bodies like FATF, Bank of International Settlements, FSB and there was probably nobody that was engaging at that level so mm-hmm. the vision for GDF was how do we make sure that this conversation about an asset that could be global in nature that is truly digital in nature is is harmonizing that conversation as much as possible so Global Digital Finance was able to invite a lot of its members including Chinalysis, Elliptic, Zcash and a whole bunch of folks at the cutting edge of you know what's possible with risk prevention in the world of crypto assets mm-hmm. to the V20 event in Osaka Japan with the uh, financial action task force and we were able to you know, make material uh, headway with 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 that community to say that uh, some of the suggestions coming out of F, F, FATF about how you manage uh, counter-terrorist financing and money laundering risk in, in around the travel rule and things of that nature um, that make sense in the old world of analog financial services mm-hmm. don't make as much sense in the world of crypto assets and in crypto assets and even digital assets there are potentially better technology-driven approaches that we could consider. And of course, the FATF turned around and said, okay, what's your industry solution? So one of the key bits of work, and one of the things if you know if you're interested in, do reach out hello at gdf.io if that's a subject that you think you can make a material difference in. Um, we are working to coordinate that response with global policymakers. Um, and you know, really seeing a lot of interest uh, from people to do the hard yards and do the graft in terms of how would this solution work? How would we prevent money laundering? How would we prevent terrorist financing? Mm-hmm. But also balancing privacy at the same time. So it's, it's hard when you start asking those questions, but it's really interesting work. So you know, we're not uh, after grabbing headlines. We're not one particular policy issue. It really is doing the work about what does best practice look like and what should the industry solutions
0: be? There, there's there's two ways to go about this. Um, one, you can have a group of entities that are just going full steam ahead mm-hmm. and then asking for forgiveness later, mm-hmm. or even you know playing a regulatory game of whack-a-mole and, mm-hmm. and just um, moving uh, around and playing the you know jurisdictional arbitrage game, yeah. right? Um, and then the other uh, path is to be you know, very transparent in terms of like the methodology and, and kind of like the thought process behind why these are good and interesting and, mm-hmm. and try to figure out um, how best to either fit within existing frameworks um, or, you know, kind of lobby uh, mm-hmm. to a certain extent for, for, for clarity so that there's at least a path forward mm-hmm. if you're trying to build a regulated entity. Um, and right now it, it seems like, um, you know, so first of all, there, 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 there aren't really, at the top of my mind, major European native crypto players mm-hmm. um, on the exchange and, and kind of prime broker side right now. Most of it, it seems to be in Asia and, and the U.S., mm-hmm. but um, U.S. Uh, and I guess to, to a certain extent European uh, exchanges, custodians, etc. Are many of them are, are getting crushed right now um, from from being too conservative. Mm-hmm. So um, those would seem to be the most likely supporters. And I know some of them are the, mm-hmm. the most active supporters of GDF right now. How do you um, how do you uh, think about the engagement with the crypto native companies, the Netflixes mm-hmm. of this industry, um, who can't really afford to wait because. Someone that's not going to participate in GDF that's going to be a little bit more clever and just you know really push the envelope from um, a regulatory standpoint is um, is is uh, going to move faster and, and and operate in a different timeline than a major bank would, mm-hmm. right? This, like I guess, said another way, is GDF for like. The the banks that are thinking seriously about how they can build out their arms because as soon as they flip a switch, yeah, it's a different standard um, yeah. that they're they're, they're, you know, they're kind of measured, measured against. against. Um, and, um, and what opportunities or, or what kind of threats does that pose to the, the current crypto giants? Yeah, so we'll probably see all of those things play out, right? We'll see people um,
1: make a load of headway and then get their wrists slapped and or significantly more depending on how they respond to it. And then they will eventually need to engage with regulators unless they unless we completely mm-hmm. upend the world and you know we do have crypto anarchy as, as, as some people would hope. Um, I think that's highly unlikely. Um, so if, if that's highly unlikely, and there are still going to be regulators and there are still going to be nation states you need a way to engage with them even if you've found a way to success you need to bring bring that back into the conversation also uh, will the emergence of these players obviate the removal of any existing financial services in combat? I don't know that it does so still the thesis remains that the answer is somewhere in the middle and whether you've shot up like a rocket and landed back in GDF or whether you work your way up through GDF I think there's a path for all sides there, and so different people will come to it at different times and will discover the need for it at different times. Um, but for instance, Diginex, um, based out in Asia, is one of our uh, patron members and mm-hmm. really, really keen to you know help grow the organization um, out, out in that region and we have more than 10 members from Asia. Um, uh, Wabi is one of the biggest exchanges in the world and is a member and really taking a lead on, on bringing some of their peers back into global digital finance. I think especially where you've got things like, uh, we we took a lead from a lot of people who had experience in the FX industry post LIBOR. Um, Post LIBOR the uh, FX industry got together and built the FX Code of Conduct and that was well received by central bankers. And I think um, now, if you consider where we are geopolitically with a lot of uh, kind of people looking at different digital currencies, there's a need more than ever for our industry to be an active participant in the conversation about what is the future shape of digital assets and, and how is this going to impact communities globally. Does that make you a lobbying? organization? I don't believe so, no. I think we are a standards organization. I think we are very much a best practices organization. Education, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that GDF would probably never do is is be writing laws and writing legal prose for people and, and trying to suggest what the laws should be much more the other way around. It's like what are the laws and how do we create an industry high watermark that maybe even um, goes further than, than some of the laws in some cases or that allows uh, your people to really actively participate in that industry. Now, yes there's an element of advocacy with a small a, which is what are the benefits of this technology, mm-hmm. but I think it's explaining it from a different perspective. I think we've had either um, we will evolve uh, the world of financial services and make it slightly better for, for ourselves or we will append financial services and there is a conversation about truly global um, assets and truly truly digital assets that are near frictionless that are more efficient fairer and more transparent and that is a goal i think that's shared by all sides and that story i think fundamentally has been missing and the opportunity to tell that story and to coalesce industry behind that is something that can be a driving north star for the entire industry. The level of financial inclusion you can create, the level of fairness you can bring into the industry by bringing in some of these technologies and promoting that
0: transparency,
1: I think is what really, really, really motivates me.
0: You bring up FAFT, right, yeah. And, um, and it's an interesting comparison, both for you as an organization, also kind of illustration of, of how some of these conversations are playing out. Um, because uh, FATFA is, is uh, a supranational mm-hmm. uh, group that really has no explicit mandate um, to regulate um, you know, different financial services uh, yeah. entities, but it has a hell of a lot of clout in the global financial system. If you're on the the naughty list uh, based on the recommendations you're, you're fucked right, right. Um, so uh you probably know a little bit more about the history of that group but but uh talk a little bit about um kind of the travel rule issues with, mm-hmm. with crypto but 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 maybe even start a step further um how that group got so powerful and what parallels you might be able to draw with gdf if it hits kind of the mm-hmm. the escape velocity as a network where all of a sudden, even if there's no government or regulatory mandates um, that's decreed from on high, the network is just so large that if you're outside of the GDF, um, people are not going to you know, take this seriously. And to a certain extent, this is kind of how we've thought about building Masari and, mm-hmm. and, and our, our disclosures registry. So I'm curious um, what, what uh, the trajectory is for GDF in light of uh, this, this kind of legacy world parallel yeah I think it's an interesting
1: thesis I mean FATF as, as you rightly point out um, have uh, a lot of a massive amount of soft and hard power um, but the hard power comes through the soft power in a weird way so th- they they can make recommendations that then have, um, must be enacted by mm-hmm. um, by nations. recommendations yeah yeah. It's, it's, it's a very odd model that they have but it's I think that's just the nature of, of geopolitics um, but it is, uh, it is uh, kind of, it takes representation primarily from the regulatory community uh, around uh, the prevention of money laundering and uh, counter-terrorist financing. So it's slightly different in that sense in that it, it's, it wasn't, I believe, industry-driven initially. Uh, but one of the things uh, it was designed to do, I think when it was formed by, uh, by the G7 or the G20, was to uh, help really uh, formalise some of the rules and risks that were coming out of uh, the likes of the OFAC List and SWIFT and things that were happening informally um, and, and deal with sort of, uh, there were a lot of countries around the world that just didn't have a certain standard of policy um, and you were seeing that there were parts of the world and there are still parts of the world but it is changing and improving where the uh, where money laundering was, was far, far simpler than, than other parts of the world mm-hmm. just because people hadn't done the basics so the first goal was like let's get the basics right and and I would say there is a parallel there with GDF in that there are definitely parts of the world where we're just not getting the basics right on tax, we're not getting the basics right on um, AML and, and mm-hmm. that's why you hear uh, politicians talk about AML so much is they're not really concerned about the US's policy on AML, they're not concerned about China's, they're not concerned about a lot of the big nations, it's bringing sort of that OECD list of nations up to a certain level. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then that was what FATF was there to do and it has been pretty successful in doing that. Um, And it's not perfect, it's not always massively effective, but FATF have realized that, and I think they've now changed their mandate from making sure everybody has rules in place to making sure those rules are effective. And uh, increasingly, we'll see probably GDF go through a similar thing, which is, yes, you're adhering to the code, you have them in place, right? How effectively are you adhering to that? And I think that conversation will change. Um, And I think there's a lot of uh, receptiveness in the global policy and regulatory community for that Mm -hmm. piece
0: of work. Uh, So let's talk about part two of uh, of FATF then, uh, which is just the impact the travel rules going to have. So this is maybe one of the most actionable things that's coming out of GDF right Mm -hmm. now is engagement around this issue of the travel rule and in particular compliance mm-hmm. um, from the, the major crypto exchanges. And uh, you can correct my, my very brief summary here, but um, the travel rule is basically knowing your customer and your customer's customer yep. um, in terms of the source of funds when it it's an exchange. So yep. um, if you can KYC your user and they're depositing from a Bitcoin account, how do you know that it's actually theirs? How do you tie like identity? Um, and how do
1: I, I know it wasn't the proceeds of crime? How do I know they're not um, sort of doing something uh, horrific like human trafficking? Like,
0: and, and, and same goes on the way out. Right? Yep. So, so you know, when you're sending money to a Bitcoin or Ethereum wallet address, like, how do you know that this is not going to, uh, you know, uh, uh, something that's that's owned by you know someone that's on the OFAC list? Um, and this is obviously causing a lot of heartburn, um, even uh, in a scenario where. Um, you're abiding by the travel rule, you could also have instances which the regulators have started to pick up on. Um, I essentially just send something to a Bitcoin address and then I send from that Bitcoin address to to my my kind of primary destination. So um, there's a a few different steps here. One, there's a kind of a technical education component. Mm -hmm. Um, Two, there is um, uh, kind of like self-assessment component within the industry. What are the tools that we can Mm -hmm. provide that will put us on par with the existing financial industry, um, and then number three, how might we be able to go even one step further? If yeah. We're talking about some of these transparent ledgers, and that's where um, the data companies you mentioned, like Chainalysis and Elliptic, mm-hmm. that are doing uh, some of the blockchain forensics, um, are are coming to play and and, and you know valuable yeah. in this conversation. So. Um, Where can uh, GDF in particular be a facilitator for that type of conversation uh, specifically and then, you know, where do you see that becoming most relevant next in terms of the working groups that that you've got going right now?
1: Well, absolutely. The education is table stakes and something we spend a lot of time on and we we partner very closely with the, uh, the OECD. Um, because there are a lot of nations that need to understand that as well, um, it's it's definitely not just the US, it's not just Europe, it's all of the, the Asian nations as well and and, uh, and and then the long tail of nations really understanding that, so the education I think is, is absolutely table stakes. In terms of the travel rule itself, one of the key things with it is its effectiveness, um, so the way, um, the, the idea of uh, know your customer is if I know it came from you, um, then I can probably go investigate who you are and what you did and, and and if you did if we think you did something wrong we can then arrest you basically mm-hmm. um and that sounds like oh wait that's privacy invasion until you realize yeah sure but you probably want that when there's a real criminal on the loose and eventually you not know, everybody does some people are truly agonistic and laissez-faire and just get all the guns but uh when you when you survey the population most people actually <coughs> don't want that so this does have um i think political support and and, and uh, social capital support but the travel rule itself Uh, is anything over $1,000 needs to have KYC on it. Um, Now, the way that works uh, in the world of financial services is any digital transaction would would require strong customer authentication above that amount. Uh, Somebody on either end of the transaction must have performed KYC. Below that, you're generally fine. And the same works when you walk into a branch. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing when you walk into a bank branch is if I go present um, $500, they just kind of move it into your account. I go and present two thousand dollars they ask you where you got it and then you have to fill that in on a paper form and they go we have we have done a source of funds check so the the effectiveness question of the existing world of financial services around travel rule i think needs to needs to be brought up and i, I don't mean to engage in what aboutism here but mm-hmm. it, i do think that we should raise the standards on all sides so whilst we're talking about raising it on crypto we should be raising it for financial services as well um, and you know, historically, according to the UN's own figures, there's an estimated two trillion dollars of money laundered every year. Uh, we detect about 2% of that, and of that 2%, we successfully uh, prosecute a f- a 2% of the 2%. So it is woefully inadequate is the existing system because it's analog and it's paper-based. So once people understand, whoa, this thing, it actually isn't working, but it's the only tool we've got, then you can start to say, well, what are the alternatives? Well then you've got Bitcoin that's almost on the opposite end of the spectrum which is completely traceable and as soon as somebody knows which wallet address you were, um, some of the companies like um, Chainalysis, Elliptic, BlockCypher can trace you to within an inch of your life and this is why um, some of the dark markets have been so effectively closed down. Um, you know, in private conversations with um, global uh, kind of law enforcement, they really love some of the tools they've got. They, they wish they had that in the world of existing financial services. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, okay, so we, we have a technology that's truly digital. Then the privacy regulators come along and go, well, hang on a minute. What about GDPR? What about all of these rules that mean, you know, like would, would I want everybody in the world to be able to see all of my transactions? Mm-hmm. How, how would that work? So we're bringing that privacy conversation in there, and we're bringing that education conversation in there, and really now the goal is, okay, so what should the solution be? And that's what the working group is really focusing on. Um, What should the set of standards look like for how we will perform transaction monitoring, uh, how we will communicate between exchanges and uh, financial services incumbents and law enforcement, of which there has been good work at the national level? What does that look like globally? How does law enforcement talk to each other? How does industry talk to each other? How do they talk to each Like that framework, but also um, what technology stack are we looking at? How are we communicating and messaging to each other? And what excites me about that is then what could you learn from that and prevent some really horrific things that are happening in the existing world of
0: financial services? So yeah, shout out if you wanna get involved, hello at gdf.io. Um, well, that's uh, as, as good a place as any, I think, to, um, uh, to to cut off. I know that you you'd mentioned on the way up that you had a, a question or two that you wanted to ask me. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you asked
1: me a lot of questions, and and given where <laughs> Misari is developing, how do you see that that flip? How do you see um, the the regular pushback on crypto versus how this how the story is going to play out? Is it more Netflix? Is it more
0: blockbuster? Like incumbents versus, or are you still in convergence land? Um, I, I think you know our our approach has been that there's going to be a few winning cryptocurrencies that are digital gold or, or kind of supra national mm-hmm. currencies that um, that that you know follow kind of a power law distribution. What we've seen with with Bitcoin and everything else, um, and then there are going to be um, uh, maybe part of that or, or or slightly separate, like a you know commodity money like ETH that's used to power different applications. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, pretty much every other asset that has value long term is going to have some type of income producing property or real world hmm. asset tied to it. Um, and that's kind of the where, where I think things will start to meet in the middle um, between uh, kind of digital assets, as you would coin them, and, um, and synthetic crypto assets. A good example might be any um, synthetic security that's basically mirroring a U.S. stock, for instance, but now might be available to an investor in Southeast Asia that doesn't necessarily have access to U.S. brokerage accounts, that can't ha- actually hold a titled security in the U.S., but can still get the same exposure to those assets via a synthetic that is technically unregulated, but that's issued on chain and relies on, on kind of an oracle to, to satisfy the price. Uh-huh. Um, those are uh, probably the middle ground you think about um, uh, new types of mutualized risk mm. and and cross-border insurance products that you know might be um, subscale for an insurance company to actually price out but makes a hell of a lot of sense for you know different interested global parties to contribute to some of it could be um, hack insurance from from major, yeah. major crypto exchanges right just to, just to use you know one one uh-huh. example um, those uh, again are going to have security-like attributes because you've got people paying in yep. with the expectation that they would earn a premium. Yeah. It's right? fixed and it's right? and it's 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 um, basically, I would argue a way to run a more meritocratic consortium, mm-hmm. right, where 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 you um, you actually give people the, the financial rewards that um, based on their their actual participation in the, in the system or, or, or value add. Um, that's still undefined, but um, but I don't think much of that requires like a wait and see approach with regulators. Uh, it's in our best interest to work cooperatively with them. But completely. Um, but our, our general sense, having sat in some of these meetings, and uh, you know me, I'm I'm very impatient uh, to deal with what I think you need to deal with mm-hmm. from uh, on a day to day basis and in interfacing with regulators. Um, we're of the mindset that it is an information business we just go out and fucking build it and yeah, then absolutely. Um, and then work with groups that are more more patient uh-huh. um, uh, both here and abroad to, uh, to, to make sure that we're you know adding value to those conversations I think we need builders we absolutely do and we need people pushing the boundaries. so long it continue Likewise, uh, well, Simon's always a pleasure, uh, and uh, I, I hope people enjoyed this. Um, side note: I know that we had microphone issues in a couple of previous episodes. Mia hmm. culpa. Um, I've I've diagnosed the root cause. We're still ironing out the kinks here, um, and uh, I'm going to continue to upgrade this podcast with great guests uh, and and a little bit better tech going forward. So, um, until next time, thanks everybody for chiming in, uh, and uh, we'll uh, we'll have this up on iTunes and Spotify within the next week or so. Uh, you can follow Simon at uh, sy SYTaylor uh, and uh, at 11FS is his company. Is it at GDF too? Is yeah. You know GDF uh, GDFIO?
1: GDFIO, yeah. Maybe. Okay. Um, no, sorry, it's at Global Digital Finance.
0: At Global Digital Finance um, for, the, for the three entities if you want to follow her. Um, otherwise, until next time, thanks again. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot. If you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.